Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I am Samaya Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bowne, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. This episode is about cars. Again, sorry. To lighten the load, we've got a very special guest, Kristen Jicek of the Center for Automotive Research. The Center for Automotive Research is a nonprofit organization, research organization that looks at the future of the auto industry in North America. Okay, so first of all, let's just talk about what just happened. So on May 23rd, President Trump issued a statement that he had instructed Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross to consider a Section 232 investigation into imports of automobiles, including trucks and automotive parts, to determine their effects on America's national security. So we've seen this process play out before. There'll be an investigation, and if the Commerce Department finds that imports of cars are a threat to national security, the president has the authority to impose whatever tariffs or import restrictions he wants on cars. In terms of the big geopolitics, it looks like he's using this as a stick to hit other countries with. So essentially, he'll threaten these big tariffs and try to get them to do what he wants. With the cases of steel and aluminium, he has used this law to impose some tariffs. So the signal that they would have sent, presumably, is that they mean business. This isn't just bluster. So in the face of it, this announcement might not be all that surprising, because in trade, there's this phenomenon called cascading protection, where one industry asks for import protection, like steel, they get it. And then the companies that use that steel struggle, and they ask for import restrictions of their own. So Kristen, is that what's happening here? Is this something the car industry has actually been asking for? No, not at all. This is not something the auto industry has looked uh, for or put pressure on the administration to do. Uh, You know, they benefit greatly from the global nature of this industry and certainly from the production footprint that they have here in North America and the NAFTA agreement. So they are not looking to put more barriers on trade in parts and vehicles into this market. I think that matches with some of the statements that have been coming out over the past day or so. I think the, the Auto Alliance has issued a statement saying that you know, they are confident that vehicle imports do not pose a national security risk to the U.S. Um, and again, just confirming this international footprint. So if they haven't been asking for this, were you surprised about the announcement? Not really. Um, you know, from the beginning of when President Trump took office, he has been talking about tariffs in this range, 25, 30 percent tariffs on the Mexican border, on European imports of vehicles. Uh, This tariff proposal has come up in a number of different contexts. Here's Wilbur Ross on CNBC after the announcement. But it is also the case economic security is military security. And without economic security, You can't have military security. So the question is, if they're focusing on economic security, do we have economic security in the automobile sector? It's it's hard to say. You know, the Trump administration has correctly pointed out that there are fewer people working in this sector now than there were 30 years ago. But the last 10 years have been a run up in employment, in sales and profits for all of the producers in the United States. So You know, are they economically insecure? I don't think they are right now. When we think about industries struggling because of import competition, 
you know, what do we typically see? What are the stress signals? And, and are we seeing those in the car industry? Well, you would see, you know, as we saw with the steel and aluminum case and the case that the, the Commerce Department made, um, capacity utilization very low. Uh, we're seeing, you know, the U.S. Uh, automotive capacity utilization around 80 percent. And I will point out that, you know, some of that capacity that's not being utilized is either currently being retooled for new product or is winding down a product that will soon be relaunched as a new product. So we have a couple of big factories that are changing over right now uh, to new products. So even in the capacity utilization, we have some headroom, but not a lot. Uh, Just a few years ago, we made 12 million units here in the U.S. and last year we made 11. So there's about a million units of of headroom at least. The car industry seems to be doing pretty well. So I'll point out that 80% capacity is the threshold that Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross said was needed back in the steel and aluminum cases to have those industries be viable. His point was that those two industries were way below 80% capacity, but that's not what we're seeing here for automobiles today. Okay, so what else about the autos case was strange to you? Well, what's strange to me is the origin of the imports that we get here in the United States in terms of vehicles. You know, 44% of our sales are imported. Uh, Half of those come from Canada, Mexico. The next largest countries are Japan, Germany, South Korea, France, Italy, the the UK. Uh, These are not countries that I consider uh, politically hostile to the United States. So if it's not national security and if it's not economic insecurity, do you have a sense for what's really going on behind this? I think that this is pressure on the NAFTA table. How is the Trump administration trying to strengthen its hand by threatening this tariff? You know, the the proposals that are on the table right now for the automotive rule of origin, there's one on the what share of the parts must be made in the North American region. There's one on how much steel and aluminum must originate in the region. There's one on how much of the content must be made by workers making above the median wage. So these are, you know, three hoops to jump through. And, you know, in order to do this, there may need to be some shifting around of capacity, some investments made, and compliance may end up costing more than what the uh, most favored nation or, you know, the the WTO tariff is for automotive uh, parts and cars, which is 2.5% into the United States. And so by threatening a 25% tariff, essentially, you're, you're shifting the equation for the companies that are choosing whether or not to comply. So you're, you're increasing the cost of non-compliance, which means that you can negotiate much tougher rules on what counts as, you, as a North American car. Yes, and it makes you know automakers and suppliers uh, less indifferent <laughs> to the investment versus pay the tariff dis- discussion that they would be having or decision, strategic decision they would have to make. It would give automakers and suppliers a clear preference between paying a 25% tariff on their imports to the United States or making the necessary investments to comply with the more stringent rules. The, the worry that I have is that this is just such an aggressive tactic that the Canadians and the Mexicans might not feel like they're able to negotiate you know, under that kind of pressure. Well, I think you know the Canadians and the Mexicans seem fairly... Um, bewildered by the direction that our administration takes in these talks. And what I've read about the different tacks we're taking at the negotiating table, it seems, you know, sometimes it's Mr. Lighthizer's agenda that's being followed. And sometimes it's 
uh, Wilbur Ross. Sometimes it's someone else who may be influencing the direction. So it seems pretty zigzag, I think, for the Canadian negotiators and the Mexican negotiators on where exactly the United States wants to end up. They know they want more production in the United States, more jobs in the United States, but they're not entirely sure how to get there. My sense is all these countries are going to need to want to be in this agreement, even when the threat of a 25% tariff goes away. So there's a chance that essentially Canada and Mexico, they see that a 25% tariff would be bad for America and they call America's bluff. Maybe the talks blow up or maybe they don't affect the negotiations at all. Um, So just thinking about what the Trump administration is trying to achieve here. So in some kind of extreme scenario, you might think that they were trying to essentially just relocate all production into America or perhaps North America. So we do have a 25% tariff on pickup trucks that dates back from the early 1960s chicken war with Europe. Might that be a success story that the Trump administration is, is trying to replicate? It might be, but I don't think it's particularly instructive in this case. So, you know, the chicken tax is a 25% tariff on cargo vehicles, which include cargo vans and pickup trucks uh, imported to the United States. And it's true that there's very few vehicles that are imported to the United States that qualify for the chicken tax. But that's not the only reason why all of the pickup truck production is here in North America. Um, And I will note that much of the pickup truck production is also in Canada and in Mexico. And if they are affected by this tariff, would be uh, subject to that uh, 25% tariff as well. But the real thing is that there are not a lot of people driving around in Europe, in South America, in Asia, driving a pickup truck that don't use one for work purpose. It's just, you know, it's a unique North American product. Most of the supply chain is here. Most of the production in the whole global system is here in North America. I think that they do think that the truck instance is instructive and that they could, in fact, move more car production here. But I think it reflects a fundamental misunderstanding of how the auto industry is structured right now. We have global automakers. Very few are producing only for the market in which they are headquartered. Uh, We produce on all the continents, except Antarctica, and we're making vehicles on what are called global platforms. So there may be a vehicle that is on a underlying architecture that is the same that's produced in Europe, in North America, and in Asia. And if there's a supplier for that, say, that makes, you know, windshield wiper motors, there may be one supplier that supplies all three plants in all three markets. So our supply chains are long and global. The vehicles are on global basis platforms and the automakers themselves are global. And this has been to some advantage to the, uh, for instance, the the Detroit three automakers that we call uh, Ford, Fiat Chrysler and General Motors. Um, There are times when the North American market is down, but they're producing and selling in Europe or in China, and those markets are are cooking along. And so their profits are are balanced when another market is doing well if the North American market is lagging. So there's, you know, some sense to stability to the company's overall profit picture if they are producing in all regions. 
So putting the chicken tax and autarky in cars aside, there's also been a lot of talk from the Trump administration about reciprocal tariffs. Do you think this could be part of a ploy to bargain down other countries' car tariffs? It very well could be. And, you know, it's not often that I say this president has a point, but he may in fact have a point here. As part of the WTO, every member agrees to offer the same tariff rate to all of the other members of the WTO. So the United States has a 2.5% tariff on cars and parts, and that's fairly low. The tariff on automobiles and parts into the EU is 9.8%. And into China is 25%. For the EU case, you might argue that a country such as Germany is at least as developed in the auto industry as the United States and might deserve a lower tariff rate than the protection they get from a 9.8% tariff rate. And then China, based on their timing coming to the market, they were really developed an auto industry very quickly. Um, it's quite mature now. It's not you know as nearly at the level of the United States. But you might argue that their 25% protection for developing a domestic industry is no longer really relevant. So I, I might push back on that and say, well, okay, yeah, the, the U.S. automotive tariff is 2.5%, but that truck tariff is 25%. And the European equivalent on trucks is is somewhat lower. So, you know, part of the story here is in, in terms of the negotiating procedures under the, the WTO and its predecessor, Countries don't typically negotiate tariff cuts in autos for autos. We trade off things. I cut my tariff on autos and you cut your tariff on something that I want, some other product. So it's not necessarily the case that in any given product, the tariffs are always the same across countries. Absolutely. And that's partly why I was thinking Airbus for autos would be a trade-off that we would see here. So so China recently announced that it was actually going to cut its automotive tariffs from 25% to 15%. Do you have a sense for what's going on there? Well, this has yet to play out in actually cutting the tariff, so we, we're not quite sure um, what uh, guarantees the United States has extracted uh, to lower the Chinese tariff to the 15%. But the reality is uh, we do send about a quarter million vehicles a year from the United States to China. It's a very small segment of their overall vehicle sales are imported. Most of the international vehicle sales in China are produced in China through the joint ventures that they have with Chinese automakers on the ground there. And so those are American companies in joint ventures with Chinese companies. So they could have actually been benefiting from the 25% tariff. Absolutely. And there are American companies and Japanese companies and Korean companies and German companies. Everyone who's anyone in the auto industry has boots on the ground and factories in China. It's the largest market for vehicles in the world, both in terms of units and dollar amount uh, or the value of the market overall. And that's where the action is. That's where the growth is. So one thing that struck me when uh, China made this announcement that they were going to cut their tariffs, and I agree with you, they haven't cut them yet. They said that I believe they would do it on on July 1st. um, So we'll see if it actually happens. But this was seemingly under pressure from the Trump administration having to do with this unfair investigation, the Section 301 investigation. But China has cut their tariffs on a non-discriminatory basis, not only toward the United States, but toward all of its trading partners. So it's not only that the United States might benefit, but also... Germans, the Japanese. And what's interesting, of course, is 
the Trump administration with China has really gone at it alone. So to my mind, it looks like a potentially missed opportunity that it, it is now providing these benefits to Japan and Germany without actually getting anything from Japan and Germany in return. Absolutely. And even the exports from the United States to China, the number one brands that we sell that are made in the United States are BMW, Daimler, Tesla, and Ford. Let's talk a bit about the history of all this. Have we seen anything like this happen before in terms of threats or actual restrictions on on car trade? Well, you know, if we go way back to when uh, the Japanese automakers first made inroads into the U.S. market, we negotiated voluntary restraint agreements uh, with the government of Japan. I wrote a paper about it in undergraduate uh, in my undergraduate studies uh, here at the University of Michigan, foggy, hazy memory of that. And, you know, what I remember most is that when you set a, a import quota, the benefits of that go to the country that are managing the quota. So Japan benefited from us setting a voluntary restraint agreement. So that was in the 1980s, and, and these voluntary export restraints look like they're making a comeback. Uh, we saw the South Koreans negotiate voluntary export restraints with the U.S. on steel to avoid the steel tariffs. So maybe this is something that the Americans are hoping to negotiate with, with countries you know, under this threat of tariffs. Kristen, what do you think the effect of all this uncertainty is on the industry? Well, there's uncertainty in NAFTA in this trade agreement and you know whether we stay with the underlying agreement that's in place now or whether there's some modifications to this agreement or whether it goes away entirely. There's uncertainty on the China trade front. There's uncertainty on uh, what might happen vis-a-vis Europe and how the United States might choose to react to the win over the Airbus case, for example. Trade is not the only place that there's uncertainty for the auto industry right now, though. So, you know, they are currently looking at the fuel economy and greenhouse gas emissions regulations, and there's some uncertainty about where that will end up. And all of this is very difficult for an industry that uh, plans products six, seven, eight years in advance, and sometimes longer, makes investments that take at least three years to get up and running from the time you made the decision to make the investment, and then makes investments that are denominated in billions of dollars. So it's a big industry, it's a costly industry, it's a risk-averse industry, and there's risk on many fronts right now. So do you think, though, that this extra special uncertainty of the, you know, the Section 232 investigation is going to add or change anything there? I think we've already seen a chilling effect on investment in North America. Folks in Mexico have seen it. It's hard to disentangle, though, from the fact that we are at or near the peak of sales in the United States. You know, the Mexican market and the, and the Canadian market stay pretty stable over time, but the, all the fluctuation in North America is in the U.S., it's difficult to disentangle it from the the fact that the market is not growing. So has the investment just petered off because of that? Or has it uh, pulled back because there's this uncertainty? So, you know, one of the things that we've looked at is certainly when NAFTA first came into place, a lot of production moved and suppliers moved to Mexico to take advantage of low-cost labor. However, the automakers have been producing vehicles in Mexico. In fact, Ford has been there continuously since 1925. Producing in Mexico was not anything new. NAFTA made a big 
push for those seeking low-cost labor. But most of the moves now have been suppliers that are going to follow the new auto assembly capacity that's gone to Mexico. And we see that most of that has gone due to Mexico's advantageous export situation. So Mexico has negotiated free trade agreements that allow them to reach over half of the market for new vehicles without paying a tariff. So they have free trade with the EU, as does Canada. So if you make a $40,000 vehicle in Mexico or in Canada, you save $4,000 in tariff versus if you'd made that same vehicle in the United States and send it to Europe. I think it's really important to mention all the implications this might have for the global rules-based system of trade. We've covered this in previous episodes, but it's worth stating again. Chad, why don't you take it away? And it's interesting because it turns out a little different than I had actually thought. So when we saw the Trump administration use this Section 232, this national security law for steel and aluminum, I was worried at the time that this might open the door for other countries to do the exact same thing. China might come forward and say, imports of soybeans are a threat to my national security, so I want to use tariffs too. But that's not actually what we're seeing here. We're seeing actually the Trump administration doubling down and doing more of their own cases. So they've said, oh, the tariffs that we got to impose for steel and aluminum, let's open that up and see if we can do it for other industries as well. I think it's kind of funny in that this new case could actually weaken their legal case in terms of steel and aluminium. So they've they've claimed that these steel and aluminium tariffs were in the name of national security. And by having this other investigation into cars, where it's it's even harder to make the case that cars are important to America's national security, you know, it just sends another signal to the lawyers at, at the World Trade Organization that actually this is just protectionism dressed up as something else. I guess I don't get the impression that the Trump administration cares a lot about the health of the rules-based system. So Maybe that's just me. It's not just you. It's not just you. And on that note, I think we should wrap it up. That is all from Trade Talks. A big thanks to Kristen Chichek at the Center for Automotive Research for joining us. And a big welcome to my partner, Samaya Keynes, for moving to Washington, D.C. for her new and expanded job at The Economist. It is very nice to be here. And thank you very much to the Trump administration for giving me a nice, calm first week. Thank you very much to our listeners, and please do not forget to send us feedback and episode ideas by following us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bound. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one, but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. So when it comes to open fronts on the trade war of autos, one open front wasn't enough. <laughs>